Amen. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Sister Rhonda. I thoroughly enjoyed that song. Amen. Wanted to read a uh, thank you card that we got this week. This comes from my uh, sister-in-law and brother-in-law. They live in Burnsville. We've been praying for my brother-in-law. He's been uh, the last year battling an unknown cause of um, seizures and uh, been very debilitating. He's not been able to work. And uh, before the new year, the deacons wanted to do something to be a help to him. They asked if I thought it would be okay. And I said, well, yeah, I know that uh, I know that they could certainly use the blessing. And so uh, they wrote this, words cannot express how thankful we are for the love gift we received from you. We appreciate your love, prayers, and thoughtfulness during uh, this hard time in our lives. Continue to pray for Rick in the days ahead as he will be making a few more trips to Duke in the uh, weeks ahead. Uh, Pray the Lord would give the doctors wisdom to determine his sickness in Christ, the Hensley family. And so um, uh, that's something that uh, I thought I got to see the... um, just the countenance when we spent a few hours with them for Christmas, just seeing how that they seemed much more encouraged uh, from the previous time that I'd seen them. And uh, I feel quite certain that um, the love gift that um, the Lord provided through us was a huge help to them. And so um, just wanted to share that with you here this morning. Take your Bibles and go to Hebrews chapter number 12. Hebrews chapter number 12, little uh, Bible study type of message here this morning, and uh, I'm going to try to learn a size you. You're still thinking about what that is. I'm going to try to teach you something here this morning that um, some of you are probably familiar with it. Sometimes in modern Christianity, we deal with so many problems in life that if we're not careful... We spend all of our time just simply dealing with life problems from the Scripture. And I'm not against that. we That's certainly the pulpit and church. That is part of what it's for. But sometimes, if we're not careful, we can neglect some of the basic, meaningful, vital doctrines of the Scripture. And uh, we're going to take a look at a very vital Bible doctrine here today that is not only vital, but it's also extremely practical in being able to understand our relationship to God and in order to have a close relationship with Him. In Hebrews chapter number 12, the Bible says in verse number 18, For ye are not come unto the mount that might be touched, and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest. I'll explain some of this here in just a little while. Verse 19, And the sound of a trumpet, and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them any more. For they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much as a beast touch the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. But ye are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, 
to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of uh, sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. And that last phrase is where we get our message this morning, and I'd like to preach to you on better things than Abel. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessings on the message today. Father, it's good to be in your house today. Thank you, Lord, for the congregational singing, for the choir, for the special music that Sister Rhonda brought. Thank you for speaking to our hearts. Thank you for the presence of the Holy Spirit. And Father, as we uh, open up the Word of God and teach and preach here this morning, we realize that for some, this might be a new doctrine. For others, it might be something that we've heard. But Lord, maybe we've known it for so long that we have lost sight of its value and importance in our life. And I pray that every need would be met today. If there be anyone here today that doesn't know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, would you speak to their heart today? Would you bring them under conviction of their sin and show them that they don't have to stay in their sin, that they can be forgiven, they can be redeemed, they can be saved? Lord, for all of those that are saved, we pray that this truth here today would be encouraging and helpful in our life. Just have your will and way, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we back up in verses 18 through verse 21, the writer of Hebrews paints a picture of something that takes place in the Old Testament. And I'd like to just read it to you. In Exodus chapter 20, Moses has come down off of the mountain, Mount Sinai. God has given him the Ten Commandments written on those two tables of stone, written with the finger of God. Moses is coming down off the mountain. And in verse 18, it says, all the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings. Now, we had some thunder and some lightning here last night. Uh, just enough at my house to upset our dog. Now, my wife and my daughter, they're out of town, and they'll hopefully be back uh, this evening from Asheville visiting family. And uh, I was there uh, by myself, and usually my wife is the dog's comforter. I am not. But I promised her that I would take good care of her dog while she was gone. And so, trying to be the good husband that I am, I took fairly good care of our dog last night. Tried to comfort it. Not successfully, but when there's a storm and lightning, she gets all worked up and all upset. Kind of like the disciples in our Sunday school lesson this morning. They're in the boat and the storm's coming and they're toiling and they're rowing and Jesus is asleep on a pillow. I, I, I asked the, our class this morning, why do you suppose that Jesus was asleep on a pillow? The answer is quite simple. Pillows are more comfortable than ship floors. You thought I was going to give you something profound, didn't you? The disciples are all worked up, and they wake up the Lord, and they say, Master, carest thou not that we perish? I mean, Jesus had already told them, we're going to the other side. They knew who he was, but yet their circumstances, all they could think about, all they could feel was the storm. 
kind of like my dog last night. There was nothing about that storm last night that had any of us in any danger. But boy, she got she gets all worked up and she starts panting. Her heart's going about 300 miles an hour and she is just a wreck. And I'm sitting there. It's like, would you please be quiet? She'll start scratching at the rug and the carpet. I'm like, stop it. I mean, I'm sorry. Stop it. My wife could be watching this. I don't know. Uh, Sweetheart, please don't do that. But she's worked up for nothing. Now, this was not one of those storms that shouldn't, you know, the people of Israel should not be worked up over. This was a manifestation of the presence of God. You've got storms, you've got thunderings and quakings, and then Notice it says here, um, let me find my place in uh, verse number, uh, verse number 19, the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words. We read when God's voice speaks that many people say they thought they heard thunder. Now I guarantee you the voice of God is a very powerful thunder. And it says here that they heard they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. I skipped back over to Hebrews, didn't I? I was reading in Exodus. All right, let me pick back up here at Exodus. It says here that there was the noise of a trumpet, the mountain spoke, uh, smoking, and when the people saw it, they removed and stood afar off. And they said unto Moses, Speak thou with us, and we will hear, but let not God speak with us, lest we die. Now, if God wanted to kill them, He would have already killed them, amen? So they're being afraid of their circumstances, what they're witnessing, but they're afraid of God, which is healthy, but at the same token, they think that God doesn't have their best interest at heart. God's giving them commandments not to hurt them, but to protect them. They just, all they could see or feel was just the thunder and the earthquake, and so forth. Verse 20, And Moses said unto the people, Fear not, for God is come to prove you, and that His fear may be before your faces, that ye sin not. Now, is that not a lost concept in modern Christianity today? The Word of God says that we should fear Him, that ye sin not. We're living in the day and age where even God's people, Christians, church members, I mean people that are faithful to church, but their lives are characterized by carnality and sinfulness and worldliness. You know, we've got a, there's been a change in people's, the, the modern concept of God. It's a perversion of the grace of God and the love of God, by the way. God is a God of love, and God is a God of grace, and God is a God of mercy and forgiveness, and we thank Him for that, but He is still a God to be feared. And I believe that if we would get back to preaching the whole counsel of God and not just focusing on the sweet, syrupy, sugar-coated stuff in the Bible and start realizing that God is to be feared, it might change our behavior. It's just human nature. I, You know what? There are times where I have committed a sin and it wasn't the love of God 
It wasn't because I didn't love Him. It was because I had lost sight of the fear of God. The fear of God is a very powerful thing. But the the children of Israel are fearing God, but at the same token, they're not trusting Him. They think that He's going to kill them. Verse 21, And the people stood afar off, and Moses drew near unto the thick darkness where God was. The writer of Hebrews Exodus is painting a picture of an awesome, terrible, fearful God. Here is Mount Sinai with lightnings and thunder and earthquake and rain and the voice of God that is speaking. And the children of Israel are like, oh, we don't want God to speak us. God, Moses, we've been complaining about you, but now we're okay with you. We're not as tired of your preaching as we were you know, if God speaks to us, we just cannot handle that. And so this is a reference to God's holy Ten Commandments that are still, that should still be our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Have you noticed that people don't seem to get under conviction like they used to? You know, there was a day and age in America where people would be out plowing in the field and the Holy Ghost would show up and start speaking in conviction. I mean, a farmer who had been to church that last Sunday and the preacher had preached, they'd sang about victory in Jesus, they'd sang Jesus saves just like we did here today, and the preacher would get up and tell them that they're sinners and that they need to be saved and that Jesus died on the cross to pay for their sins, and they would hear that message on Sunday, and the Holy Spirit would start convicting. And I have heard testimonies of farmers out there just dropping the plow and falling down on their knees in that dirt clod and crying out to God and saying, God, save save me, I'm a sinner. And when's the last time, when's the last time that we saw that or heard of somebody that got under such deep conviction that they just, they man, they had to get to the house of God. They had to run down to the altar, do whatever it took to get saved because they were afraid that their sins were going to drag them down into a devil's hell. Which, by the way, is still reality. It hasn't changed. The truth of God has not changed. The problem is the mentality. It's like the Holy Spirit has been pushed aside. The Ten Commandments have been removed from our culture. They've been removed from the schoolhouse. They've been removed from the courthouse. They've been removed from the church house. And they've been removed from our homes. And because of that, there is a lack of conviction. We need that back, folks. Because God is still the same God. God is not a God that changes. Now praise the Lord, we're not saved by the law and we're not under the law like the children of Israel were. Jesus Christ came and died on the cross and He fulfilled that. We'll see more of that here in just a few moments. Thank God for that. But He is still the same God and sin is still just as horrible as it ever has been. Now, our, our message here this morning is better things than Abel. We read that there in verse number 24. 
And there's a series of contrasts in the text that we just looked at. And Bible, by the way, Bible learning is a series of contrasts and comparisons and connections. That's how we learn the Bible. You don't need an easier to read Bible to make it easier to understand. You just need to take the true Word of God and start studying it and reading it more. As we compare and as we find these contrasts, God will start putting Bible learning and pieces of the puzzle together and things will start, I mean, things, the lights will start coming on and boy, there's nothing more exciting for a born again Christian to be reading the Word of God or maybe hearing the preacher preach, maybe hearing the Sunday school teacher teach and the lights come on and go, I see it. I see what the truth is and I see how it's relevant to my life. Sinai here in verse number 22. Sinai was an earthly physical place. Whereas Zion, verse 18, is a heavenly place. Excuse me, Zion in verse 22. uh, Sinai in verse number 18. What a contrast. Sinai, earthly physical. Mount Zion is heavenly and spiritual. Sinai, verse number 20 is a place of fear, whereas Zion is a place of fellowship, verse 22 through verse 23. Verse number 24 speaks of who are we, who we are come to. Let's look at that once again and I'll try to explain it. Verse 24 says, and to Jesus, and to Jesus. What's that talking about? Back up to verse number 22, but ye are come unto Mount Zion. So Mount Zion and Jesus are connected as to who we are come to. We're not come to the law, to Mount Sinai for our salvation. We're come to Mount Zion, a heavenly uh, mountain, and we are come to Jesus, who is the author uh, and mediator of the new covenant. And so there's another set of contrasts. Contrast between the old covenant and the new covenant. Now, the old covenant was the agreement that God made with His people there on Mount Sinai. Moses was the one that delivered the agreement. And God says, if you'll keep my commandments, then I'll bless you. If you reject my commandments, then I will curse you. That's I know there's a lot of details, but you could basically describe the entire covenant under that statement. Obey, be blessed. Disobey, be cursed. And that was the covenant that God had made with the children of Israel. Now, God never failed keeping up His end of the bargain. But Israel failed miserably. And everything that God said would happen if you reject me is exactly what happened eventually to the children of Israel. It didn't happen in one day or two days or even one year. But God's word was absolutely sure. And what God said would happen is indeed what happened. The writer of the book of Hebrews takes for granted that these Hebrews would understand the connection and yet the contrast between the new covenant and the New Testament. Folks, a new covenant, a covenant is an agreement between two parties. But a testament is the bestowing of blessings upon one's death. 
Now, we talk about the last will and testament of people. A testament and a will are connected, but they're not the same thing. They're all relevant to the death of the author of the will and testament, but they are different things. In the Old Testament, God had Solomon build a temple. And before that temple could be built, there had to be a foundation that was was laid. Once that foundation was laid, then the building could be built on top of that. Now, a foundation and a building are two different things. There's a contrast, but yet they are so connected that oftentimes they get viewed in the same picture. They're so connected that we don't typically separate the two. But a testament is the foundation upon which the covenants are built upon. A testament, the New Testament took place when Jesus Christ shed His blood upon Calvary's cross. When He died, the New Testament began right then and right there. Now we refer to our Bible once we get to the end of Malachi and we start with the book of Matthew. We refer to that as the New Testament. But as far as time is concerned, when you're reading in the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, time-wise, you're still in the Old Testament until you get to the point where Jesus died on the cross. So there's passages, I, for example, the rich young ruler comes up to Jesus and he says, Good Master, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? You know what Jesus said? He said, What does it say in the law? Obey it and you'll live. And so some people have been confused by that, thinking that Jesus taught that we are saved by keeping the law. No, Jesus hadn't died on the cross yet, and so Jesus was telling this man what he needed to hear right then and right there. After the cross... It wasn't, what does the law say? After the cross, Acts chapter 16, Paul told the Philippian jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. So the New Testament begins at the cross, but the new covenant has yet to be received by the nation of Israel. If you're reading the book of Hebrews, don't get so confused into thinking that all of it is doctrinally to the church, you'll be very confused because the new covenant, God has offered it to the children of Israel and Judah. You'll find that all throughout the book of Hebrews. That's why it's called Hebrews, by the way. I'm not saying that the book of Hebrews isn't relevant to us. It is because it has much New Testament doctrine in it. But it's also filled with a lot of new covenant teachings that are not relevant to the church, they're relevant to Israel. And one of these days when Israel repents and receives Christ as their Messiah, there's a lot of things in the book of Hebrews that's just going to come crystal clear that now we kind of scratch our head and we say, that doesn't sound like Ephesians 2, that doesn't sound like Romans 3, and the reason being is because it's not talking about the same thing. I hope I'm not confusing you here this morning. We're talking about some deep doctrines, and I don't have time to study out every statement that I've just made. But suffice it to say that the New New Testament is the foundation upon which the New Covenant 
is built. There's a connection, but there's also a contrast. Now we get back to the title of our message, Better Things Than Abel. What is significant about that statement? Well, Abel in the Bible, Abel in human history, was the first man recorded ever, human that is, to offer a blood sacrifice. If you'll recall in Genesis chapter number 4, the Bible says that Cain, his brother, brought an offering to the Lord. It was of the fruits of the ground. And then it says Abel, his brother, he brought, he was a keeper of sheep, and he brought a sacrifice of the flock. The Bible says that God accepted Abel's offering, that blood offering, but he rejected Cain's offering. Even though Cain, it was Cain's idea, by the way, he was the first one that brought the offering. But God says, I don't approve of Cain's offering, but I do approve of Abel's offering. And by the way, this took place at least 2,400 years before the covenant with Israel, before Mount Sinai ever took place. You think about it. What was going on 2,400 years ago? Uh, we're, we're the year 2020, right? Go back... Uh, 380 years prior to the time of Christ. We're fairly familiar with world history from the time of Jesus till now. There were some dark ages in there that we don't know a whole lot about, but it's at least within the realm that we're somewhat familiar. But you go before the time of Christ, there's a lot of world history and human history that it's vague. Bottom line, in the last 2,400 years, a lot of things, a lot of changes have happened. And if you go back from Mount Sinai, 2,400 years, there's a lot of people that lived during that time period that did not have the Ten Commandments, but they still had blood sacrifices that they were offering to their God, even though in many cases God had never spelled out the details of what he expected. So how does the blood of Jesus speak better things than that of Abel? Well, first of all, number one, God had respect unto Abel's offering, but with Christ's blood, God was completely satisfied. Abel's offering, he respected, but the Bible says that the blood of Jesus Christ, God was completely, totally, fully satisfied. Look at Hebrews chapter number 9 with me. Hebrews chapter number 9. Remember, better things than Abel. There's some contrast that the Scripture has for us. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse number 11 says, But Christ, being come and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. It's talking about the Old Testament temple and tabernacle. Verse 12, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve 
the living God. Folks, the, the blood of Jesus Christ, God was totally satisfied with it. And it was so powerful that not only does the blood of Jesus Christ satisfy God, but it also purges our conscience. It has an internal effect, a conscious effect. It's one thing to commit a crime and for the judge to say, you're free to go. You're not going to be punished for it. Can you imagine if you hurt somebody, you did something foolish and maybe you maimed somebody and the judge says, I'm not going to punish you? You'd be thinking, well, I didn't want to go to prison. That's great. But the offense that you did and the effects of it, you're still going to bear that in your conscience the rest of your life. There are some people that don't end up in prison and their life becomes a prison in and of itself because of their conscience. The blood of Jesus Christ is so satisfying to God that God says, you know what? I am satisfied and not only are you free from the penalty of your sin, but your sin has been washed and wiped away and as far as God's concerned, He doesn't even remember it. It's forgotten. And you know what? If God's forgotten something, then we ought to forget it as well. Are any of you better than God? Is anybody here more holy and more righteous than God? And so sometimes we say, well, and it sounds so humble, it sounds so high ground. Well, I know that God's forgiven me, but I just can't forgive myself. Why not? Are, are, Are you wanting to punish yourself? Are you wanting to atone for your sins yourself? That's not humility. That's pride. If God says, I've forgiven and I've forgotten your sins, I've removed as far as the east is from the west, I'll remember them no more. If God says, you are forgiven, we need to receive it. If He's satisfied with the blood of Jesus Christ, why shouldn't we be satisfied? Just receive His forgiveness and say, you know what? I, 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 I'm, I may still be upset at myself for what I did, but if God's forgiven me, it's really all that matters. And so don't, don't kind of hide behind this false humility and say, well, I just can't forgive myself. Just accept God's forgiveness. He, he knows what He's doing. Uh, you're, none of us are better than Him. None of us are more holy than Him. So God had respect to Abel's offering, but Christ's blood, God was completely satisfied. Secondly, go to 1 John 2.2. 2. We're going to see here that Abel's sacrifice was for Abel. He did it for himself. But Christ's was for the whole world. In 1 John 2 and verse number 2, it says, And he, speaking of Christ, is the propitiation for our sins. Now, that word propitiation is connected to our first point. When God says He's totally satisfied with the blood of Christ, that word propitiation has to do with satisfaction. It has to do with making someone favorably inclined. I mean, taking someone that used to be a criminal, taking someone off of death row and not only exonerating them, but giving them a great big hug and telling them that you love them. 
That'd be hard to do, wouldn't it? But the blood of Jesus Christ is so powerful and so effective that through it, God is not only completely satisfied, but He is propitiated. He is pleased for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Wow! I can't even imagine how many people, how many souls have ever lived in all of human history. I can't imagine the billions of people that are alive today, but if you take all of human history, that I don't even know, I can't even fathom how many souls, how many descendants of Adam there ever have been. And then you take that and you figure, let's say that everybody sins at least once a week. Man, that's a lot of sins, isn't it? And the blood of Jesus Christ is so powerful and so satisfying that it is for the sins of the whole world. Well, I don't think that God can could forgive me. I've sinned so bad. Um, nobody has sinned too bad for the blood of Jesus Christ to take care of it. All the sins, not just the bad ones, not just the little ones. The sin, the blood of Jesus Christ has brought enough propitiation for the sins of the whole entire world. Number three, Abel's sacrifice allowed God to hear him speak from the ground. We'll see that here in just a minute. While Christ's blood allows us to come before God's presence. Look at Hebrews 11. Go back to Hebrews with me. Hebrews chapter 11. This is the great chapter of faith. And we know that when Abel offered that blood sacrifice, it wasn't just simply that he had a better idea than his brother Cain. There was a heart behind it. Cain brought a sacrifice to God saying, Here God, look at the wonderful produce. Look at how beautiful that that is. Look at what I've done. When Abel brought that blood sacrifice to the Lord, he brought something that God had created, and he's pointing toward God and the sacrifice, the blood of that lamb. He's not pointing at what he did. He's pointing, he's giving the direction toward what God has done. How did he do that? He did that by faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4 says, By faith... Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead, yet speaketh. When God showed up and asked Cain, where's your brother? And he said, I know not, am I my brother's keeper? You know what the Lord said? He said, the voice of your brother's blood is crying unto me from the ground. As far as God was concerned, Abel was dead physically, but he was still alive spiritually because of his faith. So Abel brought that blood sacrifice, and he did that. And because of that, God could hear him speak from the ground. But you know what? We've got something so much better. The blood of Jesus allows us to literally come into God's presence. Look at Hebrews chapter number 10. 
Hebrews chapter number 10. This is a truth that if you're like me, there are times when I get on my knees and pray and I start to talk to the Lord and I just feel so unworthy. Sometimes I feel like I'm just talking into the air. Sometimes I feel like my prayers are hitting the ceiling and just bouncing right back. Sometimes I feel like God's so billions of light years away that how could He even hear me? And you know what I have to do? I have to remind myself of the truth of the Word of God that the blood of Jesus Christ gives me full, instant access to the throne of grace. While I may not feel it, while I may not see it, while I may not understand it, when I get on my knees and pray and I come to God on the basis of the blood of Jesus Christ, I can rest assured, I can believe it, even though I don't feel it or see it, I can believe that I am literally standing at the throne of grace. I mean, have you ever had to stand before a judge before? Have you ever had to be, I mean, get called to the principal's office? I mean, you, I had access to the principal's office when I was in high school. More than I wanted. I had a couple times. I had one time where a buddy of mine, we had, we were in shop class and the, the, the teacher said, we're going to do something this semester. We're going to make a company and we're going to make things and then we're going to sell it and you're going to learn how to the process of manufacturing and costs and you're going to sell them and all of that process. Well, I got elected president of the company and my buddy got elected vice president. We had a, a, I think it was a sophomore in our class, and uh, so uh, as the class went on, we're kind of barking the orders and telling everybody what to do. This kid comes up and he says, uh, he says, hey Randy, what what can I do to help? And I said, I said, go down the block and get us some donuts. I mean, down from the high school, there was a donut shop, and so he went and got us some donuts, and they saw him out of class, and he got in trouble, and he told them that we told him to do that. What a rotten guy. And so I get called into the principal's office, me and my buddy, and it's like, did you, did you send him down to get donuts? I said, yeah. What made you think you could do? I said, well, I mean, we didn't threaten him. He didn't have to do it. (laughs) He said, "Uh, don't do that anymore. (laughs) I'm like, okay. But I, I didn't enjoy, I didn't enjoy being confronted, being in trouble with that authority. But there's a difference between standing in front of the boss or the king or the judge if you are on their side. Wouldn't you agree? If you have favor. If you, if, hey, how about this? How about if you're family? And the blood of Jesus Christ makes us God's children. You know, there's probably, I know that any of you, if you needed some, if you needed to call me in the middle of the night, I'd be, I'd be perfectly fine. If you needed me, now if you didn't need me, I might be a little irritated. But if you needed me, I'd be okay with that. But not as okay as if my son, my son could call me in the middle of the night and not even need me because he's my son. And I always want to be available to my son. You know, the blood of Jesus Christ 
makes us God's children, and because of that, we always, no matter whether we feel up, whether we feel that we have satisfied Him, whether we feel worthy, whether we feel like we have lived up to His expectations, the blood of Jesus Christ is what gives us access to God's presence. Let's read it here in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number 19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. You know what the Bible's saying here is that we can come boldly before the throne of grace. In the Old Testament, under that old covenant, the only person that could go into the holy place where God was sitting on the mercy seat was the high priest. He could only do it once a year. He had to have the right sacrifice. He had to be right himself. Everything had to be perfect. If he stepped behind that veil and everything wasn't the way God said it would be, you know what would happen? He would drop dead right then and right there because of the holiness of God. Now, I'm told that um, in Jewish tradition... I'm sure that in Moses and Aaron's days, it wasn't even necessary. There's no record of any of the high priests being, you know, dropping dead inside the Holy of Holies. But Jewish history says that it did eventually happen. And I'm told that they began to, they, they tie a rope onto the ankle of the high priest so that if he dropped dead, they wouldn't be killed trying to fetch him they'd be able to drag him out of that holy place. That's how holy that God is. That's how horrible that sin is. And that's the same God that we have, but because of the blood of Jesus Christ, guess what? When Jesus died on the cross, the veil separating that was rent from the top to the bottom and opened it up, and all we have to do is by faith trust, and man, we can just say, hey God, how's it going? We take that for granted. Listen, God is our Father, but He ain't your Daddy. He's our friend, but He ain't our buddy. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is Almighty God. And He is to be feared, but we don't have to be afraid of Him because of the blood of Jesus Christ. That blood has satisfied God to where we as sinners can stand before Him and He doesn't see us as we are. He sees us as His Son is. Isn't that a wonderful, wonderful truth? My last point this morning, number four. Go to 1 John chapter number one. And not only do we get instant, bold access to the throne of God's presence, But Abel's sacrifice gave Abel a passing grade. God had respect. He accepted it. But the blood of Jesus Christ gives us fellowship. Once again, a big difference between passing a test. You go to college. It's one thing to pass a test. It's another thing to be related to the teacher. 
It's one thing to get an A+. It's another thing to have the teacher be with you all the time. You know, you wouldn't have to take a test if the one who knows all the answers is with you at every moment. Amen? And that's what we have. We have fellowship with the Lord. First John chapter 1 and verse number 5, This then is the message which we have heard of him, and declare unto you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanseth us from all sin. How about that, folks? Better things than Abel. We don't just get the passing of a test, but we get to have fellowship with the Lord. In fact, the blood of Jesus cleanses the sinner when he believes, and the believer when he sins. How about that? First John 1, verse number 9, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then look at chapter 2 once again, verse number 1. My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. We don't have to have a consciousness of our past sins standing between us and God. We don't have to have that guilt hanging over our head. We don't have to feel like that we're just any moment from the judge changing his mind. He let us off. We should have went to prison. We should have been executed for our crimes. And he said, I'm going to let you go free. We don't have to worry about him changing his mind. We can have fellowship and we can be close to the Lord. You don't have to hide from him, Christian. Run to him. Get cleansed from uh, from the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of Christ saves you. And the blood of Christ is what keeps us clean. In conclusion, how do we appropriate? How do we take the blood of Christ and put it into practice? How do we get it to make us satisfactory to God? How do we get that access? How do we get that forgiveness? Go to Romans chapter number 3 and we'll close with this very, very vital, wonderful, wonderful truth in the Word of God regarding the blood of Jesus. Romans chapter 3 and verse number 20 says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, that's that old covenant, that's Mount Sinai, by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation. There it is again, folks. Propitiation to make favorably inclined to appease God, to please God, to satisfy God, a propitiation through faith in His blood. How about that? You know, there are a lot of people today, and, and, and 
Sometimes you wonder, you see somebody that you don't find any evidences in their life of Christianity, of righteousness, of holiness. I mean, you, you, you look at their life and their life seems so godless, but if you ask them, are you saved? Yep, I, I, I'm saved. I, I believe in Jesus. I believe He died on the cross for my sins. Do you know that you can believe in an event and not be saved because you haven't truly grasped what that event meant or did for you? The Bible says here we have to have faith in His blood. Jesus, it's not just believing in a historical Jesus. It's not just believing He is who He was. That's a start. But to be truly saved, we've got to understand that it was the blood that He shed on the cross that paid for our sins. And believing and trusting. You know what's wrong with the person who says, I believe in Jesus, but I'm still trying to be a good person to get to heaven? You know what the problem is? They're not truly trusting in the blood of Jesus. A lot of religions, a lot of Christian religions, they'll, they believe in Jesus, they believe in the cross, but they teach people that we have to help God out with our salvation. You have to go to church, or you have to have communion, or you have to give tithes, or you have to do this or do that, all of these religious deeds. And really all that they're saying is that, yeah, Jesus died on the cross, but that was only to save me maybe 60-70%. I have to do the other 30 or 40%. And you know what? If our faith and our trust is ultimately not in completely in the blood of Jesus Christ, then it's not good enough. Jesus didn't die on the cross to help us get saved. He died on the cross to save us from our sins because we are totally helpless to save ourselves. The sooner that we start, sooner we start believing that and trusting that, then the sooner that we can know that God is satisfied with us and we have been born again. Verse 26, to declare, I say at this time, His righteousness, not our own. Our own is just filthy rags, Isaiah says. But His righteousness that He might be just and the justifier of Him which believeth in Jesus. When we believe in Jesus, we also have to believe in the blood that He shed upon the cross of Calvary. I um, just got a statement in the mail just a few days ago. I have a um, uh, retirement fund from one of my previous jobs, and the employer put some money into a, some kind of a retirement, IRA, 401k, I don't remember exactly what it is, but they put some money into it throughout the years, and so when I left that company, that I just let it sit there, and so it's just been sitting there, and fortunately, it's been in an investment firm that every year it's just like, man, it does really good. I mean, it's just, it's grown over the years, and I think, man, I hope that that continues. That's a good investment. And I've often thought, it's like, you know what, that, that investment's doing so good, I ought to add to it. And seems like I never do. But I've thought about that. That's a good investment. When you find a good investment, you'd probably be willing to put some of your hard-earned money into that investment, right? 
Do you know the blood of Jesus Christ is such a good investment that God says, I don't want you to give me some of your money. I don't want you to trust me a little bit. I want you to totally trust me for your salvation. It'd be one thing to put a portion of your paycheck into an investment. It'd be another thing to just write over the entire paycheck and say, I'm just giving everything I've got into this investment. You'd have to have a lot of faith and trust that that investment was going to perform like it says it's going to perform. Wouldn't you agree? Well, I've got news for you here this morning that if you will invest your soul, if you will invest your heart, if you will invest your life and say, the blood of Jesus Christ is an absolute sure thing. It's my only way to heaven. It's an absolute way to heaven. It is fail-safe. It is fail-proof. God has never lost a battle. He's always done what He said He's going to do. I am staking my entire life, everything I have, my time, my resources, my heart, my soul, everything about me, I am staking it on the blood of Jesus Christ. Guess what? You just made the smartest investment that you'll ever make in your life, and it will reap eternal life benefits. And those benefits, by the way, start the very moment that you put your trust in Him. You don't get it after you die. You get it right here and right now. And it starts the moment that we start putting our faith and our trust in the blood of Jesus Christ. Better things than Abel. Abel did a wonderful thing. That blood sacrifice was great. The covenant that God gave through Moses, the Ten Commandments, great laws to live by, but we don't live by them. We fail. And when we fail, we have sinned against a holy God. Something needs to satisfy the judgment that we have put ourselves under. And the only thing that can do that is better things than Abel, and that's the blood of Jesus Christ. Are you trusting the blood today? for your salvation. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank You for the Word of God. Thank You for the blood of Jesus Christ. What a wonderful truth to know that You are completely satisfied with us, not because of anything that we have done, but because of what Your Son did on Calvary's cross. Thank You for that precious blood, the victory that it gives, the cleansing that it gives. Thank You, Lord, that it makes us favorably inclined, that You can look down upon us with pleasure rather than in judgment. Uh, We pray if anyone here today is not saved, that this message will strike a chord with their heart and that they would be saved before they leave this place. In Jesus' name, amen.